Hello, and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Unless you or someone close to you has spent any time in jail or prison, you probably haven't given much thought to the health of people returning from incarceration. But when you consider that incarcerated individuals suffer from chronic health conditions, substance use disorders, and mental health issues, much like the rest of us, but at rates far higher than the general population, and that the vast majority of them eventually return to their home communities, it becomes clearer why health system transformation focused on formerly incarcerated individuals can offer lessons for the wider healthcare world. Our guest today is Emily Wang, MD. Emily's a nationally recognized expert on this topic. She is co-founder and director of research for the Transitions Clinics Network. That's a national organization committed to reversing harms of mass incarceration by eliminating racial health and economic disparities. And I should add that in 2022, Emily was recognized with a prestigious MacArthur Foundation Fellowship for her amazing work. Emily, we're so honored that you could join us. Welcome to Turn on the Lights. Maybe just to get us started, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about how you got engaged and involved in the health of the incarcerated population here in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's a question that still kind of baffles my family. Like they can't believe that I've been able to fashion a career like this. It was random and by chance. You know, when I think about what brought me here, I was a history of science major in college and I studied the history of HIV. And you would have thought that at that time, you know, the intersections now, it's real obvious, right? Between HIV and the criminal justice system are obvious, apparent, it's disproportionate, but it actually never came up in my undergraduate years. And it was only till I got to medical school, a random conversation with a college friend of mine who had started a prison education program behind bars. So early on, started bringing college students in and participated in a formal college education for incarcerated people that I started hearing more about, in particular, real differences in sentencing, the death penalty for blacks and whites, racial disparities in sentencing. And so that kind of started opening, like I just never thought, it never occurred to me. And so I was at Duke Medical School and interested in this and during a basic science year where, you know, I should have been really invested in the lab. Started, I just cold wrote a few prisons in North Carolina, trying to learn more about the prison system and the prison healthcare system. I hadn't thought much about it. And essentially a women's prison, the warden at the time said, you know, she would love to have medical students involved in really trying to think about reproductive health and reproductive justice of, of women who are incarcerated. And so my girlfriends and I, medical students, friends of mine, started a small class for women who are incarcerated there. And then I ended up taking another year off during medical school and randomly I was interested in infectious disease. So I thought I was going to become an HIV doctor. It was stationed in Botswana, the Center of Disease Control, and took a year and by total happenstance was placed in their prison system, the largest system in Havarone, in their capital. And, you know, in a project looking at tuberculosis among incarcerated individuals and correctional workers and the risks therein for those two populations. And the juxtaposition of having been working, you know, as a medical student in the women's prison 
and then working in Botswana. Was it different? Were these two very different environments, but what, what was their prison system like? Yeah, I, I think really kind of struck me to the core. And so I'd say for people, and I wonder if y'all have stepped foot into a prison or jail in the United States. You know, when you walk in, in my first time walking into the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women, there were just bars upon bars, the security, the towers, et cetera. And really every kind of, there's visual, auditory, every sensation is around kind of control. And increasingly, who you see behind bars and how you interact really kind of starts shaping and molding that experience of having been incarcerated. When I walked into the Hamarone prison system, I mean, I remember really clearly, you could not distinguish this max security prison from any of the other ritzy homes in the neighborhood. There was like a wall, barbed wire. You walk through, there's no kind of metal detectors or whatnot. You walk into an open air courtyard that is their max security prison. And I remember the first look of it was individuals walking back and forth through the courtyard in the middle of it. There was a correctional officer that was getting his hair cut by an incarcerated person. Bowls of food, ample food, sun. There was even music going on. And so you can see kind of the whole experience of, you know, at this point I was a medical student, but you can see very much so that just by the very nature of that first experience, how differently structured the carceral system is in the United States as compared to how it was in Botswana. And I've been in now many, many other nations' prisons, and there just really is nothing quite like how the U.S. has fashioned most jails and prisons. So, Ellie, I'd like to hear more about other countries. Let's start in the U.S. Can you just take us to school a bit on what is the, can you make some summary comments or statistics about the state of health and health care for the incarcerated population in the U.S.? We've entered right now, this year, is the fifth decade, 50 years of mass incarceration, kind of an unprecedented series of laws, policies, and practices that have increased kind of the whole system of carceral control in the United States, such that there's 2 million individuals at any given point in time that are behind bars in prisons and jails. There's 5 million plus in a system of community corrections. So again, in parole and probation that are also under a carceral system. And then almost, and again, the numbers aren't precise, but let's say 80 million adults that have a criminal record. And one of the things I think is important to think about is that over these past 50 years, it's not just the experience of having been incarcerated, you know, having been behind the walls, as I described, of a jail or prison, but it's also the experience coming home coming back into the community in a form of community corrections where, again, you have to go and report to a parole or probation officer or live with a criminal record. And in many states and in many communities, you've served your time, you've served your sentence, and still have a criminal record. And that criminal record prevents you from voting, voting maybe for a lifetime in certain states. It prevents you from getting food. It prevents you from getting housing. It prevents you from getting certain forms of employment. And so these laws, policies, and practices really constrict how you're able to move forward in civil society, even after you've been incarcerated. Let me ask, you say 50 years ago, it wasn't like that. There's been a steady increase in these numbers. What happened and what was it like before we did that? That's exactly right. It's around when I was born. But, you know, there was discourse around the end of prisons, right? And so really kind of what we're talking about 
was a rapid exponential growth of these laws, policies, and practices that have come and they're rooted in lots of different policies, but they come from things like mandatory sentencing, where by the judges don't have discretion for the certain types of sentences that they dole out. So increasingly longer and longer sentences, criminal justice laws like three strikes, right? So we all know that is like three strikes. And then all of a sudden, there's no way of peeling back kind of uh, the sentences that are handed out. They also come from uh, the deinstitutionalization of uh, mental illness from hospitals, moving into the communities. And then now, whereby we have kind of the largest mental health providers or in jails and prisons. And so again, laws that have kind of exponentiated overturn, I'd say like a voting polity that's really interested in harder and harder sentences, such that we have a whole system, not just, you know, again, the time that you spend behind bars or the ways that we incarcerate it, but also the laws that really constrict, like I said, they're called collateral consequences, but these laws that restrict what it's like following release from having been incarcerated. And I think the one thing that I want to point out and the one thing that as a med student that got me good, like of what brought me here was that there is a constitutional guarantee to healthcare behind bars. And it's one of the only places prior to the Affordable Care Act where there was a constitutional guarantee. And what it meant, and again, in the 1970s, didn't mean too much, but as the number of individuals that have been incarcerated has increased, Mm -hmm. sentences have gotten longer and people age behind bars. What it means is that you have to have doctors, you have to have nurses, you have to have a whole health system behind bars to provide that constitutional guarantee. And so inevitably, it means that in certain ways, prisons and jails have had to grow to accommodate the changes in the population behind bars. And that to me is something that didn't come up in that school when I was at Duke, there wasn't a lot of training about kind of how it is that our healthcare system behind bars intersects and interfaces with that healthcare system. But that's the hook. Emily, tell us a little bit about what that looks like. So you're describing it, the reason that we have had to create essentially a health system behind bars. But tell us a little bit about what it looks like. How does it feel? Is it appreciably different from the health system outside of prisons? You know, what does it look like? How does it feel? What's different about it when your population is incarcerated? One thing I think is important to know is that there's, let's say, like 6,000 plus correctional facilities in the country. And when you've seen one, you've seen one. And so there's a real heterogeneity across prisons. Again, so prisons, for those that are listening, are typically correctional facilities that house those that have been sentenced, typically serving sentences of greater than a year or more. Again, there's a little flexibility of that definition. And then jails. Jails are housing those that have been arrested awaiting adjudication of their crime or serving sentences of less than a year. So in jails, there's a huge throughput, like people moving in and out. And again, the estimates aren't perfect, but it's about like 7 million in and out of that system each year. And then prisons are typically, again, correctional facilities where the sentences are longer. It's about two years and seven months is the average amount of time. But like I said, the sentence has gotten longer and longer. And again, almost 95% of individuals that have been incarcerated are coming home, okay? And so I think there is this constitutional guarantee to care, but it looks very different across prisons and jails. And I think the first point to note about this is that we just don't know much about the healthcare systems or the quality of healthcare behind bars. There are certain systems that are run by university, community, academic centers, 
where I would suspect the quality is quite good. And then there are correctional facilities where you almost have no access to healthcare and we have no knowledge about how they're delivering healthcare. What we do know is as follows. So as you both know, I'm a primary care provider and taking care of now thousands of individuals that have come home from prisons and jails. And one thing I can say is that how healthcare is delivered in structure is very different that in the community as compared to correctional facilities. I think that we can say is categorically a true fact. And so- What makes it different? I mean, tell us more about what feels different about- Yeah. Your one setting versus another. For instance, and maybe it's like there would be three kind of different points that I could bring up. One is that access to healthcare is quite different. So here, you know, again, they're in the community. There are barriers to healthcare. So barriers of insurance, barriers of like when facilities are open and whatnot. But you can always get healthcare. You can always opt out. You can always roll up into an emergency department at any point in time, get care. In correctional facilities, for the most part, there are different sorts of barriers to getting care. And so just to give you an example, in certain settings, you have to fill out a form to see a healthcare provider if it's an urgent issue. And if that urgent issue is first evaluated by correctional officer at times, and then evaluated by a nurse, and then you get access to a physician. And so you can see that there are significant barriers to getting healthcare, and that the barriers are put on by the carceral system. So a correctional officer, and again, depending on what your relationship is like, it can feel incredibly different to be able to like just roll up into emergency department. You have an acute issue. You know, imagine yourself being incarcerated during COVID. You're short of breath. You don't feel well to have to go through those barriers. That presents a barrier. The second is that there's co-payments often in a lot of healthcare systems for acute issues in particular. And so here in Connecticut, the co-payments three bucks for a visit. And probably most people are like, well, what's three bucks? Three bucks doesn't sound terrible. Three bucks is equivalent to four days of pay if you have the privilege of having a job in prison. And so you're making 75 cents per day. And so you have to save up to be able to go see a healthcare provider. And so that's just an example of kind of barriers access. I think that alone may surprise people to learn that people in prison have jobs and those jobs pay 75 cents a day in some cases. So that going to the doctor is actually represents a very substantial investment. And you have to imagine people are going to be very careful about making those choices. Don, I imagine that's a big challenge around access here in the the jails and prisons. Emily, what are the healthcare needs? I mean, what does this incarcerated population need in healthcare? Is it just like the general population or are there special profiles that mark that population? Our team and others have really kind of peeled into this. So one is that we've criminalized drug use disorders. And so in doing so, we see a disproportionately high prevalence of drug use disorders. So opioid use disorder, we're in the middle of an overdose epidemic, alcohol use disorder, cocaine use disorder, and all the concomitant diseases that run with those drug use disorders, right? So you have higher rates of HIV, higher rates of hepatitis C. We've also disproportionately incarcerated poor people. We've incarcerated kind of the whole class of diseases by which poverty, I'd say, is a real mediator of these diseases. And so what you see in this country is right now, and the data are always mind-blowing to me, but one in three or one in four Black men in their lifetime in this country will be imprisoned. And then the rates are even worse among poor young Black men. 
And so we see diseases of, I think, that really kind of run in the same threads of, of structural racism and poverty in this country, where you see higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of asthma, ones that are kind of coalesce in urban centers, which are really ones, I think, of stress, of poverty, of disenfranchisement. Um, and so you see all those higher rates of diseases. And then lastly, as I mentioned, we've had a deinstitutionalization of mental illness. And so, of course, you see higher rates of psychosis, higher rates of bipolar disorder. And so multiple diseases, comorbid diseases that pass in and out of our jails and prisons each year and, again, are exposed to a healthcare system that's just real different than you might expect in the community. Let me give you one other example. So as a primary care doctor, I often think about how do we create that activated patient in the dream? You want a person to be able to understand and manage their own chronic health condition, know how to use the pharmacy, know how to self-manage their conditions, et cetera. In prisons and jails, for the most part, people that, let's say, have diabetes rarely have the opportunity to manage their own diet. So prisons spend about anywhere from a buck to three bucks a day per person on their food, okay? And so you don't have a lot of choice, in fact, on your food. You don't have a lot of choice on your exercise. And you actually rarely, if ever, are drawing up your own insulin. So the data show that about 40% of individuals that pass through prisons and jails are newly diagnosed with a chronic health condition that they're learning to manage behind bars. And so what that means for a patient that has diabetes is that they're called at the crack of dawn by a correctional officer. The correctional officer takes them to a nurse. The nurse is then drawing up their insulin, checking their sugar, injecting it, The person themselves is never drawing that up and then returns back to their cell. And so if they are hypoglycemic, how do you manage that? You don't have food access, you know? And so you're learning a whole set of other practices that are necessary to survive, but you're never learning to actually draw up your medications. You're never learning to call the pharmacy. Many prisons and jails then don't have the appropriate teaching for how that person manages their diabetes following release. And so when individuals are released back into the community, they get short supply of medications, but they've never actually had to go through the motions of how you manage that chronic health condition in the community. And so one of the things I think that shocks people is that adherence is almost 100%, right? That almost every chronic health condition that's been studied is better managed behind bars. And when they return home, it worsens. And you can imagine there's lots of different things about what we ask the patients behind bars is just totally different than what we're expecting of them when they come home. I want to get into a conversation with you about why, why we're in this pickle. I have to ask one other question though. I became aware through work with you that we actually have a law in this country that forbids Medicaid coverage for people in prison. Can you explain that? What happened? Why would we do that? And what does the law say? So in the 60s, when Medicaid and Medicare were first designed, part of the stipulations were that there's a Medicaid inmate exclusion policy whereby those that were on Medicaid and Medicare, have correct when they, if and when an individual is incarcerated, these correctional facilities it could no longer charge bill to you know, federal or state public health programs for the care that's delivered behind bars. And so, you know, again, in the 1960s, where the rates of incarceration were real small or folks were young, it actually didn't play much of a role. Again, fast forward 50 years from now. And what this means is, especially as we've expanded access 
to Medicaid to health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, you have a large population of individuals that are either eligible for Medicaid or currently Medicaid beneficiaries that when they're incarcerated, their benefits cease, stop entirely, it's terminated. And the correctional healthcare system then again is paid for in different ways. And so there's a different formulary, you know, the kind of care plans that are designed are totally different when they're incarcerated. And then when they're released again, either have to reapply or in certain states it's suspended, but still there's a reactivation. And so again, the medications, for instance, like you're doing great on a certain set of medications behind bars. And then when you're released, you actually no longer have access to that or vice versa. You're doing great in the community and then you go in and the correctional facility has a different sort of formula. And again, you can't be on the same medications. And so there's a real complexity and again, a real disconnect where by most correctional facilities don't have kind of that continuity of care post-release. And then also we don't have kind of a continuity of care when a person's actually incarcerated to make certain that the patient is at the forefront, the front and center of the care plan. What's at the heart of this, Emily? Why have we arrived at this situation with our correctional care system? Uh, It sounds almost, it's architected in a way that feels deeply punitive and injurious. I mean, from a health perspective, very difficult to actually maintain a certain kind of health. I'm curious about why you think we've gotten to the situation. And you described at the beginning of our conversation here, a very different environment that you got to visit in Botswana some years ago. What's maybe at the heart of why our system is the way it is and what might be different about comparable international environments? Why we've gotten to where we are? I think I'll read that answer in. Um, I think our system is structured to function exactly the way it was designed, is that we have probably what I'd say is a four-tier healthcare system behind bars, and it's intended to produce the very outcomes that we're seeing for poor folks of color. And as a history of science major, I think it's rooted in a lot of things. I mean, recently I was reading about the Freeman's Bureau as emancipation happened, we created a second tier system for newly freed slaves. And again, staffed it with very few physicians. Again, it was in the time where it's trying to manage a pandemic outbreak. And to me, it is something that as healthcare providers, it's easy for us to turn that blind eye. It's behind the walls. We never see it. We never think about it in spite of the fact that millions of individuals move through the carceral system each and every year. And it's only now, after five decades of it, that we're starting to think, hey, we've been obsessed with transitions of care for a long time. And these transitions of care, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. And so the part of me is really thinking about it's a four-tier healthcare system, low-tier healthcare system for those that are poor, that are disenfranchised, that can't actually even vote in our democracy. And it's exactly functioning the way it's meant to function. We have a saying at IHI, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. It's getting the results that it's designed to get, unfortunately. I think. I guess another kind of related question might be, why should all of us in this country really be invested in the health of prisoners? Well, from your point of view, you're describing the size of the population and the fact the population actually moves in and out of jails and prisons. It's not a static population that's behind bars. That may be part of the reason that we should all be invested in the health of incarcerated populations, apart from the moral case and the reasons that we can all imagine for wanting to make sure the health and care of 
our imprisoned population is better, incarcerated population is better. Why else should we be paying attention to this? Why should it matter to everyone in our country? I think, you know, just to take a hard pause, which is just to say there is that moral case. And it really is this system that is designed as such, I think, is rotting us from the inside out. Separately, I would say that I think it's important to kind of that you're raising this point because, you know, oftentimes I'll get into the conversation with these patients and that's lovely work. But I think it's important to say that while it is these millions of individuals who have been touched by the carceral system and the healthcare system that's, I think, largely under-resourced, really siloed from the larger public health system and whose health is worsened, there are also impacts on their family members. And so their family members and communities that have been disproportionately affected by mass incarceration. And so I think it's important to members that we've gotten to the place in this country where nearly half of all Americans have had a loved one, an immediate family member who's been incarcerated. Of course, this disproportionately impacts Black families and poor families. So a, a beautiful study that was led by researchers out of Cornell found that, you know, it's nearly half of all Americans and also that Black families are about 23%, I think, a quarter of all Black families who have three or more immediate family members who've been incarcerated. Three or more. And Emily, you made the point that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated are going to return to communities. And at the community level, we have to deal with the consequences of what's happened to them while they were incarcerated. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And even more so, the literature is now suggesting more and more so that even if you haven't been incarcerated, but your loved one has been incarcerated, that stress of having been incarcerated the kind of economic deprivation that having a loved one incarcerated, kind of what that means, the stigma, et cetera, has independent health impacts on the family members. And even more so, just living in a community where there are high rates of policing, high rates of arrests, high rates of people that are being pulled out of your community and put back in and pulled out of your community and put back in. You can imagine all the disinvestments that have happened in those communities. That has independent impacts on lifespan on mortality, on prenatal care and kind of premature, like at the both ends of our lifespan, right? So at the end and then also at the beginning. Okay. So let's build a different image here. Again, most of what I've learned about this field from you, Emily, and I think was you, someone said, you know, ideally being in the punishment is to be in prison, losing your freedom. Yeah. The prison is not a place for punishment. And I, that's just resonating in my head. So what's a different model? You've been around the world. You've been recognized by the way you are a MacArthur fellow and congratulations in 2022. And I'm going to ask you later about that. So what's a different way to think about this? If I can be bold, how do smart countries deal with this issue of justice and incarceration and handling crime? I think that there are certainly lessons that can be learned, I mean, from other countries. And often there's comparisons with the Scandinavian countries. And so I'll go there. I also just want to put a big caveat, which is to say that our history is rooted in chattel slavery. Our history is rooted in kind of racist policies that are not ones that are similar and kind of the lessons learned. Some of them can be applied, but not fully. So I'll give you an example. I had the opportunity to go with a World Health Organization to Finland to go visit their prison system. And a number of things strike me as just wholly different. So, for instance, the length of incarceration is just entirely different. So the longest day for what we would consider a violent, heinous crime was 14 years. So that's the longest. Whereby, and you think about the U.S.'s kind of penchant for punishment, we have like triple life. What does a triple life sentence even mean? 
right? In comparison, 14 years. In those max security prisons, what they have, individuals still, because they're still citizens of Finland, can visit the public library. They can still see their families on the weekend. They're still kind of considered members of society, members of the family, because on the other end are children and loved ones that also depend on that person to be a parent. They're still trying to learn how best to simultaneously treat their substance use disorder, attend to their chronic health conditions, atone and be accountable for the crimes they've committed while reentering. And one of the correction officers there, leaders, was saying, because here we're so fixated on kind of, and this is a whole other conversation, but what are the outcomes that measure success post-release? And we talk about recidivism, right? Like really obsessed with kind of how often people go back in. They're like, we expect that people go back in. You don't fixed substance use disorder at one shot. It's a relapsing, remitting, improving. And so they see this as a progression over a life course. So even how they measure success is different. But the thing that kind of blew my mind, Don, like blew my mind was that when going to their prison system, and it almost looked like an apartment furnished with Ikea furniture, real sparse, but beautiful in certain ways. And there was a sauna in each, in every cell. And I was like, what is this about? Why would there be saunas in people's cells? And they explained that sauna, apparently there's like 300 words for sauna in Finnish. That's a real important part of Finnish culture. And so why would you deprive a person from Finland something that's fundamental to who they are, their own humanity, even when they're incarcerated. So of course, when a person's incarcerated, they still have access to sauna because that's part of Finnish culture. And that to me is like, I just can't get my brain around when you think about the prisons and jails here is that we see these folks, I think, often as less than human. Like we're here to punish, 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 and then even still more once you come home. And that to me is fundamentally antithetical to how it is that you build a civil society, how you hope that people return as families and citizens. Wouldn't an average listener now be saying like in the American public, well, wait a minute, you don't want to coddle these people. They committed crimes. And why would we send them to a, you know, a first class hotel with a sauna? It's the wrong signal. Okay, so help us think that through. Yes. I mean, Asana, you're right. Like in the U.S., that that's not part of our culture. But I do think one kind of fundamental part of our culture is that you've done your time, you've finished. And then, you know, like we are a country of chance, of opportunity, of second chances. Like that is fundamentally a value that I think we hold. And so interestingly, and I think is important, is that there is currently bipartisan support of recognizing that how we've designed our carceral systems is not keeping our public safe. How we've designed our carceral systems is incredibly costly and is not functioning. And so there's energies to redesign them and reform them in different ways. And I do think that this is at the crux of it. It probably is like so far removed to think about a sauna. That's fair. But what I don't think is too far removed is to say, A person has served their time. They got their sentence. They did their time. They've come home. There are family members. In fact, 50% of individuals have a family member that's coming home. And then to see a person that's done their time still have barrier after barrier, getting them shelter. There's barriers of Section 8 housing, food stamps, employment. 
And then not being able to vote feels fundamentally un-American. You know, and like we had another guest on this program, Jason Leach, who was part of the Scottish National Health Service. They run a program with their prison systems where prisoners and interact with their children on the outside. And part of it is to help create that sense of holistic personhood of the prisoner. But a lot of it is about ensuring that there's continuity and connection to family as the person transitions from being in prison to being outside. And it not only is helpful to the family, of course, of the, and these young kids, but it's also very important to the prison population, the prisoners, and it results in they're not coming back to the jails or prisons nearly as often. So it's an important transition. You talk a lot about that transition in your work that we've been reading about the movement from being incarcerated to being outside. You've mentioned it here in the program before. Could you tell us a little bit about the health of the folks as they move from being inside of a jail and prison to being outside in the community and the system you've created to help bridge that transition? I'd love to learn more about that as well. One of the things we recognized a decade, close to two decades ago, is that there is this poor transition from correctional facility where there is a healthcare system back into the community. You know, the research actually shows that there's a significantly high risk of dying. So uh, published in the New England Journal in 2007, uh, data that from Washington State by uh, Dr. Ingrid Denswanger showed that there's about a 12 times increased risk of dying even in the first two weeks following release from a carceral system. 12 times risk of dying as you move from one setting to another? Wow, it's incredible. Right? Temporally, there's very few things that would confer that risk, right? And in her study, and has been subsequently replicated in other states, for conditions that are largely preventable if the transition of care was better. So you can imagine for overdose, uh, for heart disease, for cancer, for suicide. So again, also homicide. So in her study, those were the five kind of highest, five primary causes of death. And again, we've done subsequent work also kind of using data from Medicare showing that the hospitalization rates are incredibly high, not surprisingly, in the months and even a year following a release from largely preventable conditions if ambulatory care was transitioned well. And so some of what I think is important is to note that it's because there's this disconnect, as, as Dawn indicated, that health insurance doesn't cover, there isn't a discharge plan that's mandated there isn't kind of a lens looking at quality in this transition period, even though we know it's at high risk. And so many individuals are released without meds, without a primary care appointment, without medical records that help transition their care. And, you know, you think about kind of what's mandated right now, like you go in for ops, an ops visit in the hospital 24 hours, and at the very least, your team has sent the meds to the pharmacy, sent a note to the primary care doctor. There's a summary of the ops stay to improve that transition of care. Well, that doesn't happen for those that have been incarcerated. And so it's this area that about 15 years ago, Clemens Hong and I started thinking in partnership with people with histories of incarceration, how do we improve that transition of care? And what we thought that was like a real low hanging fruit, like, oh, it's just transition to care, we've got this. And so talked to individuals who had been incarcerated, healthcare providers that had been incarcerated, family members to kind of hash out what are the core components of care that they'd want to see following release from a correctional facility. And interestingly, and then the data didn't exist, but they wanted like quick and immediate care. So they knew that that risk was high in those days following release. They wanted to be seen the day after, you know, two days after. And what we settled on was trying to get care within two to four weeks. They wanted a person with a history of incarceration to guide and lead that. There's so much of the care 
that is hard to navigate, but even more so. A former prisoner, Emily, this is a former prisoner that was the care navigator or the support for the... Yeah, in particular, kind of rooted in community health workers and that tradition that, you know, derives from really thinking about prevention, really thinking about health workers as a political force, right? To have a person that has a history of incarceration that not only would be kind of navigating the healthcare system, not only navigating the social service system, right? So again, getting Medicaid back on, what's your ID? We haven't talked about IDs, getting your ID, getting housing, getting employment, but importantly, had done it and been successful at it, had been able to kind of navigate and understood what the healthcare system was like behind bars and in the community to recognize that there are all sorts of reasons that incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people should distrust the healthcare system. And this is the way to kind of, again, engage, re-engage a class of people that are really disenfranchised to start building trust in the healthcare system. So one of the community health worker wanted healthcare providers that actually knew there was a healthcare system behind bars. So we're rarely trained in it. What they wanted was like doctors would say, well, welcome home. Let me help you get your health records. Oh, I understand that you were in solitary. What was that experience like? How Or shift the conversation to questions like, we believe that being behind bars is one of the most health-harming things that can happen. How can I keep you home? Like just leaving it open-ended like that. So having physicians and healthcare providers be able to have that conversation. And then fourth break, have the kind of healthcare team that involves this community health worker really navigate what are the social determinants of health, right? So what are the structural determinants of health? How do we help you navigate getting your ID back, getting Medicaid, getting a job? How do we help you navigate civil legal needs that you might have, not just the criminal ones? How do we help you navigate with your permission the system of parole and probation that often prevents you from being on buprenorphine or even methadone that often for arbitrary reasons Parole and probation, as y'all know, often are kind of testing and interpreting urine toxins and then can send you back inside, even when you're on treatment. You know, they don't have this understanding of what addiction medicine is like. How do we help you navigate those systems? And so it's with this that we started a transitions clinic program in San Francisco and tested it. It designed a small randomized controlled trial, found that it improved acute care utilization, not surprisingly was successful in engaging people on care and have subsequently shown that the model of care actually keeps people from going back in. So it really is a mode of decarceration. And it's with now led by Dr. Cher Shavit, the University of California, San Francisco. She's grown what was a program to start led by formerly incarcerated individuals into a national model that's really at the fore of what is historic, which is CMS's announcement of supporting states for the first time to have Medicaid coverage extend into carceral systems 90 days prior to release. Suppose there's a listener who is interested in the transition clinics network system and might want to see if they can get something started in the locality. How would they get connected? And is that possible? Yeah. Thank you for that. It's reaching out to, again, Shira, Shira Shavit's team. And there's a website, www.transitionsclinic.org, just to look. And I think what's important to note about this is oftentimes what we have found is that there's power in the collective. We learn from each other. So in joining the network, we're all looking towards California, where there's 21 programs right now that are now going through 
this 1115 waiver, right? And how it's going to feel to kind of, for the first time in our history, have Medicaid extend behind bars. And it's through their experience that then in Connecticut or North Carolina or in these other correctional transitions clinic systems and programs that we can then learn from their experience. And so much of what the network does is coalesces our energy, really kind of teaches our healthcare systems to transform. So, you know, for instance, if you start a program, then you have to hire a person with a criminal record. Well, most HR offices in, for instance, Yale New Haven Hospital is not really down to do that. And so that requires training expertise from the network to really push our healthcare systems, not just in starting a program, but in transforming from the inside out to deliver the care that's needed. Yeah, I'd love to see every city and town in the country be in this network. So it's transitions. Transitions Clinic. Dot org. Transitionsclinic.org. Okay, listeners, get on there and see if you could That's get your homework assignment. <laughs> well, Emily, we are unfortunately out of time. I get so excited listening to your work. And what a magnificent personal story from the distress and the kind of serious concern you developed as a medical student and then uh, seeing the contrast about Botswana to becoming a true international change agent of enormous accomplishment. But we've got a long way to go. Uh, we both know the carceral system is still not on the rails yet. So we always close our interviews with a question. Where are you in the optimism to pessimism scale? Do you think things are moving in the right direction? How fast, fast enough? Or are you saying it's not going to be, we're not going to be getting there right now? How are you feeling? Yeah. You can't do this work without recognizing that there has to be hope. You know, I'm reminded each and every day, there's people all over our center here who have been incarcerated. And so we have to ground ourselves in kind of a more radical imagining of the system. I will say increasingly, though, it does move, you know, again, this 1115 waiver, there's lots of details that have to be worked out. A lot of concerns, I think, that are right, which is, you know, concerns about how the cultural system is now taking hold of new funds, et cetera. 1115 waivers, language we use to refer to the Medicaid system that allows a state now to do something they've never been allowed to do before. It's, it's, it's the form of application to the government to say at a state level, we can do this, right? Sorry, I interrupt you there. No, thank you for that clarification. And so again, what it means is that the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation will be for the first time able to bill Medicaid for certain services. And also how it's designed is hopefully to transition care effectively, humanely, thoughtfully for patients that are coming from the correctional healthcare system back into the community. However, the concern and caution is, is that Oftentimes, our community healthcare systems, our leaders on the outside have ceded that power and said, well, this is a problem of corrections. And in doing so, a huge system behind bars that's largely unregulated. And so the hope here is that this will activate us as healthcare leaders, payers in the community to engage with correctional facilities, to really take responsibility, be accountable for the patients that are inside and bring them home safely. Well, Emily, we are so grateful to you for the work that you do and for spending some time with us here today and with our audience on Turn On The Lights. Thank you so much for what you do. Listeners, visit transitionsclinic.org. It's a great site and you're going to learn a lot and hopefully start your own version of this in your environment and join the network. Emily, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be in conversation with the two of you. Really appreciate it.
Well, that was an exciting interview. It was great to hear from Emily, a qualified MacArthur genius, just a lovely individual. And what a story of how she got into this work. Yeah. If you ever need proof that a single person can change the world, I think you point to Emily's story. It's really quite remarkable what she's done. She's not alone. There is a big community of people working on carceral health and prison reform, of course, but she's really, really stepped out and made a big difference against a lot of obstacles. I love the way that she, towards the end there, started talking a little bit about how she was engaging with formerly incarcerated individuals to help bridge the connection. And she talked about building trust and It's been an interesting theme for me over the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic, observing the erosion of trust in our systems in healthcare in general. And she talked about very, very clearly how prisoners need to see other prisoners, formerly incarcerated individuals need to see themselves on the outside and see how they can be successful in that. It makes so much sense. And it's a great model for providing care in this really critical transition period. Yeah, I think there's a general theme here about people with lived experience and how helpful they can be in designing healthcare. When I see uh, the incorporation of people with cancer and cancer support groups, or certainly the carceral system, formerly homeless, you know, helping with that transition with our exactly. other. Yep, it makes a tremendous difference. Maybe we should have a show on that on the importance of lived experience, people with lived experience in this particular setting. I've seen it myself. I've had the pleasure of visiting several times the UTEC system here in Lowell, Massachusetts. It's reaching into prisons for young people that have been incarcerated or getting them off the streets before they're incarcerated and into a system. And the helping system is mostly people who have been incarcerated. And you watch the dynamics. They're so sincere and authentic and informed in a way that would be hard without that. So I'm I'm with you on that. You just can't know what it's like to be in the prison health system if you hadn't formerly been in the prison health system in some way. And making that transition seems so critical and so important. I was also struck, by the way, by the fact that so much of the mortality and injury takes place in that two-week window right after you're released from a prison or jail. It just reminded me of the seven days after a hospitalization, you know, where the rate of return to the hospital is much higher than if you get beyond that period. So there's something about that window of time that's a critical intervention period. And Emily's network is stepping in to that window and saying, we can be a support to you during that critical time. That seems like an important design feature of what they're doing. Yeah. Incarcerated people I've spoken to describe a really terrifying experience of re-entry. They suddenly from a very confined and over supported period, I guess you might say, absolutely at loose ends, you know, housing, food security, getting an identification card, a driver's license, finding health insurance all become suddenly this massive onslaught of problems and the kind of things she's done with transitioning Clinics network, transitions clinic network, I think is exactly responsive to what's needed. And add to that the burden of managing your own health conditions, which were, again, reminded me of being in the hospital, right? You're in the hospital, people are bringing your medicines to you on a schedule, oftentimes helping you do the relevant things. And then you move out of the hospital and you're expected to self-manage all these conditions that you were being helped with for days on end. The same thing's true here. You're you're suddenly left to your own devices with regards to your health conditions. Um, Yeah, indeed. I must admit to my hope that this TCN process, the Ingestion Clinic Network, which has now been studied formally, it does work. I don't see why it shouldn't be a standard around the country. I was also really intrigued by the international comparisons. Uh, How did we go off so wrong? And she's relating it back to our relatively unique history of racism and slavery, But it is, you look at what's going on and I have in other countries where carceral system is treated as an opportunity to heal, to restore, to connect. 
as opposed to punish, it is very, very different and so much more effective. The data are there. I don't know how we get the mentality change in this country. Because there's a philosophical difference there, Don. I mean, it doesn't. It, stri- it strikes me that there's a belief system in the ability to reform that's present elsewhere that we may simply seem to not have for whatever constellation of reasons that we seem to believe that once you've offended, you're an offender always. And that sounds like that's not the, the view and the belief and the structure of the criminal justice system in other parts of the world. Yep, apparently so. We have it wrong against our own self-interest, even if you don't care about incarcerated people, which I do, of course. But if you run a system this way, it's going to come back to haunt you. And why would it be so short-sighted? I don't know. The easy answer is it's structural racism built into the system. That's a big part of it. But you're right. I think, as you said, it's a change of mentality. I really wish we could get there. So much would be better off if we did. I agree. And it's also true in the health-related challenges of this environment. I mean, you can imagine, and we started talking about this, that if you leave a prisoner jail, go into the community, and then rely on the emergency room or other expenses source of care to help you manage your condition, it's going to cost us in general. There is a moral case, of course, for making health and care better for the incarcerated population. But there's also an economic argument here that I think is pretty clear about whether or not we should be taking better care of people. Yeah. So the argument works whatever way you want to look at it. The argument works for taking better care and more humane care of our incarcerated folks. And for so much that you and I are exploring this podcast, it's a matter of changing mentality as much as anything. And I think that we it'd be a journey well worth taking. Yeah. Well, Don, thanks very much. And thank you again to Emily for joining us today. Yeah. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.